I want to remind you after the service today, there's a volunteer appreciation lunch. It's free. Can't be that. It's rainy outside, so why go to a restaurant and wait when you can stay here and consume a meal, enjoy fellowship, and just have a great time. So even, I think we have a, Roy, is it fair to say we have enough food? If everybody wants to stay, we can, they can stay. Yeah, so anybody, I mean, if you're, if you're, not, if you're thinking about being a volunteer, right, stay and be part of this today, and we want you to, to stay and enjoy our time together. So uh, we're going to have a good time. So that'll be immediately after the service in honor of all the volunteers, which we have a ton of volunteers from people that volunteer as care coordinators in K-groups to check in, to set up. I mean, it's all over the place. People are volunteering. And so I appreciate all those who make this happen every single week. You know, last week we had uh, an amazing celebration of Resurrection Sunday in here. It was awesome to see this room full and just packed out. And one thing that was pretty neat was, I know for some of you having your kids in here was a little tough for you possibly, but they did great. They did outstanding and uh, they sit there and, and behave. They didn't distract me at all. And so I really appreciate that. I was thinking about growing up in church and always we, we sat on the third row. And I don't know how my dad did this because my dad's a very laid back guy, but if we started acting up in church, that was one thing that we knew, you know, we better consider before we do anything, because my dad could just look at us with this certain look, this certain, this eye us, and we would just be scared to death. I mean, we would just settle down, we would calm down, and we were little, but we knew that look. And, you know, you've heard it said, the eyes are the window to the soul, and we understand that there's certain looks, there's certain ways that people look with their eyes that you know something's going on in there with them. And, you know, there's angry eyes, there's loving eyes, there's eyes that show boredom, there's eyes of frustration. We all do it. We all can, with our face, and particularly with our eyes, we say something and it comes out of what, what we're about, right? And today in our text, even though John does not mention this truth, Luke talks about how that when Peter denied that he knew Jesus, that he was a disciple of Jesus, that Jesus was in eye shot of Peter, and he turned and he looked at Peter at that moment. And I got to thinking, what kind of look did Jesus give to Peter on that day when Peter just had this major, massive failure, to say the least? And so as we look in the Gospel of John today, I want us to think about Peter and this bold, courageous guy, and we see a theme maybe developing here, even kind of by accident, no accident to God, that, you know, it's one thing to say, I believe, and I would stand, but Peter, when the moment came to it, he failed, he crumbled. And so let's look at this today, and this message is for anyone in here who's failed Jesus before. If you've never failed Jesus this message probably isn't for you, but for the rest of us, I hope it's a help. So we're going to be in John chapter 18, 12 through 27. Let's uh, pray, and then we'll read this passage and talk about it. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the gospel of John and how that he gives us this incredible insight into the life of Jesus Christ and that we can build our faith on him because he is who he says that he was. He, you are Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And God, we thank you that through the resurrection, that you proved that you were who you said you were. And God, we pray today that we will just allow our lives to center around Jesus more and more every single day. In his name we pray, amen. Just a brief recap of where we're at in John. And let me just remind you that we, we study the life of Christ not to just get a worldview, even though we get one, not just to get a way of thinking, a philosophy in life. 
We study Jesus because he is God Almighty, and he rose from the dead proving it. You know, there's a lot of people in our world today that come up with a philosophy, a way of living, some maybe just some wisdom from experience, or maybe just some things that they've learned along the way that they think can guide their life. But if it's apart from Jesus Christ being the center, it falls short at the end of the day. And I'm going to encourage you, if you're in here and that maybe you're not really sure what you think about Jesus, you don't really know if you even know Jesus, I'm going to encourage you to think about last week, think about the resurrection, what we celebrated, and why that Jesus is different than any other belief system that exists in this world. So last week, we saw that Jesus entered into the Garden of Gethsemane voluntarily, willingly. He walked in there. He knew what was going to happen. He'd already predicted what was going to happen. When Judas and the arresting party came to Jesus, what did Jesus do? He didn't run and hide. He stepped forward. He identified himself. He said, I am, right? And we learned at that moment that Jesus actually restrained his power. He could have called angels down. He could have defeated, easily defeated these uh, hundreds of troops that were with Judas at this point to arrest Jesus, but he withheld his power willingly because he knew that he had to go to the cross. And then he said that he's going in the place. He said, let my friends go. Let them go. Take me because it's about him. And he, he said that he would protect his friends, his disciples. And that's what Jesus did. So we continue the story in verse 12 now that Jesus has been arrested. So verse 12, the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And so John alone here gives this brief account of this interrogation of Jesus going before Annas. Now, Annas was the former high priest, and the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the Romans, for some reason, we don't know why, removed him as high priest. And so even though he wasn't technically the high priest, he had a great deal of power and authority, possibly because the Jews so despised the Romans for jumping into their business, of all things, their belief in God and their Judaism, their their faith, that the Romans would insert themselves and remove Annas and insert Caiaphas into that office. So maybe the people viewed Annas as the legitimate high priest. We don't know. Since the mob brought Jesus to Annas first, Annas may have been the one who masterminded Jesus' whole arrest. Maybe he was the one that Judas approached about his betrayal. We're not sure about that. But biblical and non-biblical history show Annas as an arrogant, shrewd, ambitious, and extremely wealthy guy, okay? Now, here's an interesting fact. You know what his family did for their wealth, how they accumulated their wealth? By selling things that were needed for the sacrificial system within the temple, all right? So think about the life of Jesus. What did Jesus do on two different occasions? He went in and he threw out the money changers and those who were gouging people for prices because they knew they had to come and make their sacrifices. And so his wealth came from exploiting the people. And so Jesus came in and he exposed this corruption. And so did he have motive to kill Jesus? Absolutely. And so by this time in our narrative, it's more than it's, it's early Friday morning. It would have been 
12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning, maybe 2 o'clock in the morning. It's early, early morning. And in this section, we have parallel accounts that are going on. As you read the narrative, you have the scene of Jesus' interrogation, but then you also have, at the same time, Peter's, the scene of Peter and what's going on with him. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through with Annas and Caiaphas and Jesus' interrogation and then come back to the verses that talk about Peter. So let's skip down to verse 19 in our text. And this is where the high priest interrogates Jesus on two issues, his disciples and his teaching. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. What did he want to know about his disciples? Again, we're not sure, but maybe he wanted to know the size of his following so he would know what kind of insurrection could possibly be taking place here. We're not sure, but he wants to know what's the deal with the disciples. How many disciples do you have, probably? And then his teaching, even though uh, Caiaphas will go to Pilate and present the case that Jesus was a threat politically, in this case, they want to know about Jesus' theology as well. The Romans weren't overtly, overly concerned about Jesus' theology. They weren't really concerned about that. What they were concerned about was, is this guy causing trouble for us? And so we see in verse 20, then Jesus responds to the interrogation, and he protects his 11 disciples as he's saying these things. So get the picture. He's protecting even as Peter is out there denying. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So Jesus, what he's stating here is, it's public record what I've said. All right, And this interrogation that's happening illegally is just a ploy to get Jesus to be tripped up and to say something. And it's the high priest's job to call witnesses and first for those for the defense. But none of that's happening here. This would be similar to what you see in movies of a police interrogation, right? Where you kind of like the rules, let's turn the camera off and let's let some stuff happen here, right? We know that doesn't happen in real life, but in the movies, that happens, right? And, and so that's happening in real life here. In this situation, they're pressing Jesus, but Jesus, he's not going to say anything incriminating. If he does, Annas could be a witness to that in his trial. But Annas, again, is, he's ignoring Judah, Jewish law, and he knows that what he wants here. He wants Jesus dead, and he isn't concerned about truth. He's not calling witnesses, and that's clear. And so Jesus responds to it, and Jesus' response really is about, hey, call the witnesses, right? And he says this back to the court, and what happens when Jesus disrespects? Look what happens in verse 22. When he had said these things, when the officer standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And so one commentator writes as Jesus responding to the high priest, to Annas, that it's all grace and truth here, what we see. How is it grace in what Jesus says? It's grace in the fact that God would even allow himself to be interrogated in such a manner and allow this servant who he created to strike him in the face in the first place. And so Jesus gives truth. truth. You can't separate grace and truth, but it's grace and it's truth. He's given truth, and they don't like it. And so in verse 23, Jesus responds to the guy who hit him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But what if, I, if, if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And so he's saying there's no evidence here. There's no witnesses that's happening. 
And so Annas here is at an impasse, all right, with Jesus. Jesus hasn't said anything incriminating. Jesus knows his rights, that he, he has a right to call witnesses. And so he's frustrated, and so he sends him to the high priest, the ruling high priest, which is his son-in-law, Caiaphas, verse 24. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so if they were going to successfully prosecute Jesus to the Romans, then they needed to go through Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the one who was appointed as the high priest by the Romans, and he would be the one who would be making this case politically to them. So his biggest concern, Caiaphas, would be the political impact of this. And if you look back and read history, Caiaphas was a member of what was called the Sadducees. We've heard a lot about the Pharisees through the book of John. And the Pharisees were uh, a little more religious-minded. Uh, they, they were really cared about the law and obeying the law. And so even though we see their hypocrisy, and Jesus points it out because their heart's not in it, they still were very much cared about the law. Well, the Sadducees were more political in nature, and they were the ones who loved their wealth and they loved their influence, and they loved the power that they had because Rome had given them a great deal of power. And so they feared that the Roman military might respond to any type of political uprising. So they were pretty comfortable accepting the Roman rule to some degree so they could continue on with the things that we're doing. But if you go back to verse 14, what Jesus, what, what John said about Caiaphas and his statement is kind of interesting. And I think it was Roy who preached this sermon some weeks back from chapter 11. It, it, verse 14 says, It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one man that he should die for the people. So what Caiaphas' argument in here is that it would be much better to take Jesus and have him put to death than the Romans come in and like they just take out a lot of people, right? They just deal with this insurrection that's happening. So it's better that it's more expedient that Jesus die for the people, right, instead of the people. And, and, and John points out that, I mean, this is very prophetic, what Caiaphas said, even if he didn't know what he was saying, talking about the substitutionary atonement. And so back to verse 15, as Jesus is being interrogated by Annas, Peter and another disciple, they probably have followed the arresting party, and they've gone down to Annas' residence where this interrogation is taking place. And so we see Peter here in verse 15, look at, it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus. Maybe he's going to come through on his pledge to be faithful to Jesus. Is he? He's following along, and it's just him and one other disciple, and so did one other disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. And so this unnamed disciple is probably John, the writer of our gospel, because often in the book he will call himself something other than by name. He never mentions his name. But apparently he had a connection that allowed him to actually enter into this area, this courtyard, and even into the residence of Annas, the person who was kind of conducting this interrogation. But verse 16 says that Peter, he stood outside the door. So he kind of was outside of the gate. And look what verse 16 says. So the other disciple, probably John, who was known to the high priest, he went out and he spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And then we see Peter's first test here, verse 17. So as they're probably walking in, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of his, this man's disciples, are you? He said, 
I am not. So what happened to the guy just a few minutes earlier who pulled his sword out and chopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest? When all the other disciples, except for this one other disciple, abandoned Jesus, Peter shows some boldness and courage by following along. But now he's confronted by this servant girl, and he denies knowing Jesus. What happened? What happened? How can he go from bold and courageous, I'm going to follow, I'm not going to abandon Jesus, to then in this next moment, this happening? Well, I think we have to trace this back to the garden and a passage of Scripture where John did not give us the account of, but the other Gospels did. Why did Peter fail? I think first and foremost, because of pride. The other three Gospels give the account of the prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus took his disciples in and then he took the the three that he was closest to, Peter, James, and John, a little further in. And Jesus implored them to stay awake and pray because he says that the spirit might be willing, but the flesh is weak. And how many times did Peter fall asleep? Three times. Three times, even seeing Jesus in agony and Jesus just hurting for the fact that he is going to experience the wrath of God and take on the sin of the world. Look at it, verse 37 of Matthew chapter 26. After taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful, Jesus did, and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And then a few verses later, when he returns, he speaks to Peter directly, verse 40 and 41. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And instead of staying awake and praying, he slept. He fell asleep. His friend, his Messiah, Jesus Christ, is being held against his will, but he could not stay awake in the garden to pray and prepare him for this moment. Now, one thing that's really, really interesting here to me, that Jesus tells Peter in the garden as they're praying to stay awake so he won't enter in temptation and so that he will not give in to the flesh. But we know that Jesus predicted that Peter would fail. When the rooster crowed, right? Peter three times would deny him. I think we see something that's true in Scripture, that we don't understand the mind of God. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, and there will be a verse at the end of the sermon where we reference God's election and our responsibility. But here we have Jesus knowing what's going to happen in Peter's future, but he still implores him and, and challenges him to stay awake so he won't enter in temptation and fall to the flesh. And so what we see here is this, this way that God is able to just deal in a realm that we just can't understand. How that we argue over things like, you know, Calvinism, free will, and, you know, like, let's, which, which team are you on? And, and all along, God's like, look, my ways are so much above your ways. Look, I could, Jesus can tell him, pray so you won't enter into temptation, knowing that he's going to fail in these moments. Now, one thing that Peter does not do and as Jesus alluded to in the upper room, he says, Peter, I'm, failing, I'm praying for you so that your faith will not fail. But when you do fall, when you do stumble, 
you're going to return to me. I'm praying that that's going to happen, that you'll return to me and restore the brothers. And so Jesus knows everything that's going to happen, but he still says for Peter, from the human element, the human side of it, look, the temptation is strong, and pride got the best of him. Pride got the best of him. I don't need to stay awake and pray. And the other thing I think we see from Peter is that, that we need to pray earnestly. We need to pray earnestly for victory over our weaknesses. We fail to really, I think, appreciate, I guess maybe a better word, comprehend the seriousness of temptation that we deal with every single day and how that it's so easy through life just to just get off the track as far as following God's will and do our own thing. And we think that we're a lot stronger than we actually are. And I want to encourage you to be honest with yourself about the weaknesses that the Holy Spirit identifies in your life. And, and for the Holy Spirit to identify the weaknesses in your life, you've got to pray and seek God and admit to God that you're weak in the first place. Scripture clearly says, be careful if you think you're standing because you're going to fall, right? And so we as representatives of Jesus Christ who walk through this life and people look at us and they should see Jesus at some level within us, but we get up and we go about our day and do our thing and rarely think about Jesus, yet we're going to represent him on our own strength and not through the power that he gives us. It starts with admitting our weakness. I was telling Somebody at dinner the other night that one way just a few years ago that I, I really decided to get serious about my struggles and my weaknesses was to ask, at the beginning of the year, ask the Holy Spirit to identify one thing in my life that I really was having a hard time defeating. That This was something that just kept coming back and again and again and again. And I would put it at the top of my prayer list and pray for that every single day for an entire year. And look, let me just tell you, this is not self-help, Okay. Because there's no benefit in being a better you 2.0, okay? There's no advantage in life, spiritually speaking, for you to be a better person, all right? So if you just say, okay, I got my weaknesses here because I want to be better at this or that, and you start praying, God is not going to honor that prayer. God honors a prayer that just like Jesus says, I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm doing, God, what you want me to do. And this thing in my life is a stumbling block in me fulfilling your will. And so I'm going to put it there before God every single day, first and foremost, and say, God, I need you to do this in my life so I can more accurately represent you in this world. That takes some commitment, some consistency, and some dedication. But I promise you, if you be willing to just expose your weaknesses and just pray and just don't let pride get in your way, you'll be amazed what God can do. And this statement by Paul Tripp, I think it's from New Morning Mercies, just sticks with me. He says, remember, it is not your weakness that gets in the way of God's working through you, but your delusions of strength. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Point to his strength by being willing to admit your weakness. Eventually, Peter is going to learn about being diligent and watchful. In fact, he writes in the book of 1 Peter some years later, be sober-minded, or you could say alert. Be alert. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion 
seeking someone to devour. And boy, Peter got devoured in this text today, did he not? What about you? How's the battle with the flesh going? Are you turning that over to God? Are you admitting your weaknesses? Are you in community with other brothers or sisters in Christ where you can be honest with the things that you struggle about? Are you oblivious to the fact that you even have any struggles? The Holy Spirit who lives it in within the true believer wants to help you recognize those things. And how good are we at blaming everybody else for our problems, right? And it comes a moment when we have to get real about the flesh and the power of the flesh and the things that are in our life, big and small, that are stopping us from pursuing Jesus and representing him to our friends and neighbors and coworkers like we should. And so this is really a call to go to battle because we see Peter, and we know Peter failed, but Peter learned from this, and he writes to us, hey, you be alert. You be watchful because the devil is prowling around trying to devour and destroy you and your testimony. He wants you to cave in again and again, and maybe it's a big colossal failure that's coming up, but maybe it's just a bunch of little things that have your number that you're unwilling to admit to God that you struggle with. And so Peter failed miserably. He underestimated the weakness of his his flesh, but he learned from his mistake, and God used him in a very, very powerful way. Look at verse 18. Now, the servants and officers, this is within the courtyard there, had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So get Peter here, all right? He's still there. He's just kind of blending in. He's in the courtyard. He can see Jesus more than likely at this point. And he's watching as Jesus is insulted. He's accused. He's even hit on the side of the head. But Peter was afraid that Jesus would die. And he was fearful for his own life as well. And so we see the second or the third reason why Peter failed. Just old-fashioned fear. He was scared. And Jesus had warned them just a few hours earlier, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. Keep in mind, earlier that evening, Peter had boldly declared his allegiance and that he would die with Jesus. But look what happened. He just was caving in. And he feared people. He feared suffering. He feared persecution. How about us? Do we fear people? Maybe you think, well, Mine's not so much the fear of people. I just fear looking stupid or fear, fear rejection. Both of those come from the same place, which is pride. I see a lot of people who are unwilling to step forward and lead and be an example for Jesus and take the leadership that they're prepared and ready to go because they're afraid how stupid they look. Well, somebody might ask me a question. I don't know the answer to it. Pride, right? Or just fear of people, pride. Like, I don't want them to think I'm stupid. Or I don't want them to think that, you know, I'm not... You know, that I'm too serious about this Jesus thing or whatever. And so we have this pride that shows itself through fear. And so pride is the root cause always of fear. So let's pick back up in verse 25 now. We see Peter's second test. Skip down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, just blending in. So they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? What did he do? He denied it and said, I'm not. I'm not. Strike two, right? Peter fails for a second time. And then verse 26, his third test. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had just cut off, asked, 
Did I not see you in the garden with him? Here it comes. Ready? Strike three. Peter once again denied it. What happens now? And at once the rooster crowed. This guy accusing Peter of being with Jesus was there in the garden. He was an eyewitness. He saw. He was a relative of this guy who got his ear cut off. He's like, I saw you, man. I saw you there with the torches and the lights. I saw your face when you cut my cousin's ear off, right? He identifies him. And surrounded by the stares of this little huddle of group of people with an earshot of this thing that's going on with Jesus, Peter just wasn't ready to put his life on the line. And just as Jesus predicted, the rooster crows. And that's where Luke, in this account, he tells us that John leaves us out. He said in verse 61 of chapter 22 of Luke, he says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That must have been a look that killed Peter in a thousand different ways, right? How about you? When you catch a glimpse of Jesus looking at you in that moment of sin or when you're denying him or not standing up for him, do you feel that just grief and that shame that Peter felt when he, verse 62 says, he went out and he wept bitterly? He knew that he blew it. Jesus told him that he would do it. The thing is, Jesus is not surprised by our sin, and he's not surprised by our failure. But thinking about Jesus looking at Peter, I think this is important, and it requires a little bit of biblical speculation here. But if, 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 if this is a human, Jesus, standing there, and Peter does this, the look of the eyes when he stares at Peter is going to be, I told you so, Peter. I told you you would do that. Or disgust. Peter, you disgust me. You see, that's the way we as humans act when we're betrayed and when somebody doesn't come through on what they said they'll do. But I don't believe this was the look that Jesus gave Peter. I believe that he saw Jesus' incredible love in his eyes, the love that he had given these guys for three years. And again, Jesus not surprised by what had happened here. And I said, I make this case that this was a look of love. I make it biblically because Romans 5.8 tells us that God showed his love for us, that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us when we were his enemies. So how much more does he love us when we are his friends, when we are those his children? And so I think sometimes we think that we understand theology that God counts the righteousness of Jesus to our account in salvation, when he justified us, he gives us the righteousness of Jesus. But then, practically speaking, we live our lives as if Jesus is repulsed by us or disgusted by us. But our inability to measure up to his holiness is the whole reason Jesus had to come to the earth in the first place. And back in chapter 6 of John, verse 37, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will not, never cast out. I'll never cast them out. So again, the look of love to Peter. Peter, yes, you're blowing it. I told you you were going to blow it. Too much pride. You fell asleep three times. But the look is love because Peter was truly a believer. His faith was truly in Christ. He said it with his mouth, and he lived it with his life. In this moment, he fails in a big way. But he's still one of Jesus' children. In fact, the Bible calls 
us saints, which means holy ones. We're saints in God's eyes. And we need to get that into our head, who we are in Christ. That as Romans 8.39 says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Our sin doesn't push God away. I would argue that it moves him closer to us. Like a good father who wants to embrace an afflicted child, that God moves toward us. He's a perfect father. And we know in our, in our humanness, even though we may find disgust a very natural thing when our kids fail, in the end, we come around and realize that it's love that we must give them that we, to bring them back and to allow them to grow from their mistakes. But God is the perfect father. God is the perfect father. And just no more than Peter's failures define him does your failures define you. It was a horrible stumble along the path to following Jesus, but Jesus transforms them into something good. And we know that in the life of Peter. But do you believe it in the life, in your life? Do you believe that God wants to take your stumbles and your failures and use it? Will you lift up your face and look to Jesus? I think that it's, it's so important for us to just to remember nothing can separate us from God. Nothing. And just in our heart, just visualizing Jesus looking at us in those moments when we're tempted to deny him, to run after short-term pleasures, to pursue things that we know are not going to land us in a good place. And we're denying Jesus by our actions. And our biggest problem is we look away from Jesus in those moments when we're tempted instead of looking toward Jesus and seeing Jesus' love and his commitment to us to finish what he started within us. Look, this isn't about just you can do whatever you want and get away with it. Look, a true believer, Scripture is so clear, and it puts a lot of warning verses in Scripture. Look, if you're, if you're running from God and you're pretty comfortable there and you've made the decision to just avoid God or disobey God, you better be following through on verse, and reading verses like uh, examine yourself. See if you're in the faith in the first place. Right? There should be something going in your heart, this, this conviction that takes place because the Holy Spirit lives within us. And so Scripture says again and again that, look, people, they were with us, but they went out from us. If they were truly with us, they would have stayed here. They would have been part of this community. And so when someone can just go for months and years at, at a time just running from God and running from community, running from accountability, that's a really dangerous spot to be in that you don't really even know whether your salvation is true or not. But what I'm talking about here is those are you who truly want to know and follow Jesus. You truly want to live for him and be his ambassador, but you just find yourself day after day failing again and again. Look, one, join the club, right? We're all there. We've all been there. We're all there. And the sin that you're dealing with, probably most of the people in here have dealt with it as well. There's people here who can help you and and give you encouragement and accountability and come alongside you. But you've got to be willing to humble yourself. Pride will lead you nowhere good. And so I encourage you to pray daily for your specific weaknesses. And then seek out someone who's going to be a mentor to help you in this walk. You need community. Listen, you need others, plain and simple. You need others. If you're trying to do this by yourself, you're in a world of hurt. And you're trying, you're saying, well, I'm committed to God. I just, I'm just kind of shy or, you know, I don't know who to ask. 
No, it's pride. Plain and simple, it's pride that's getting into your way to be what God has called you to be and do what God's called you to do. And so if you're trying to live the Christian life in isolation, it's going to be really, really a tough go, and it's going to be nearly impossible. You have brothers and sisters in this room who would love to spend time with you, to disciple you, to help you, to keep you accountable. I meet with probably five or six fight clubs a week myself to help encourage guys. I hope that you'll be part of that. Don't keep running by yourself. You'll find yourself in the situation of Peter again and again. You'll go out and you'll weep and like, I'm so sorry, God. I, I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I blew it again. I can't believe I've represented you so poorly again. But you don't follow through. Repentance says, I'm going to go and make a difference. I'm going to do something about this. It's not just saying, God, I'm sorry, and then moving on. But it's like what Jesus said, if your eye offend, you pluck it out. He's saying, go to whatever extent necessary to deal with the sin that you're struggling with. And through that, you seek out community and one another to help you be what Jesus has called you to be. Don't be like Peter. Don't let pride and arrogance get in your way. But know that redemption, like Peter, is there available for you. If you'll love Jesus, look to Jesus, and follow him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the gospel of John and just the incredible truth that we see through your life and through just following you in your steps as you live your life on this earth and you're acquainted with every struggle that we go through yet without sin. You know the struggles of our flesh. You made us. You created us, God. But you also put the Holy Spirit within each believer in here to give them the power to say no to temptation and say no to the flesh and live a life that's pure and upright and godly. And God, we know this, this age this, that we live in, it, it's, it's a terrible, terrible culture when it comes to any kind of semblance to wanting to follow you or recognize you or even give you respect, God. But we know that you put us here to be a light in this darkness and not to be angry and mad at culture, but God, to go and to love this culture, giving truth with grace to help them see their need for a Savior, God. Help us to be the people you called us to be in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.